and let us pray together. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight through Christ Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. That brief little story uh, that I told to our young man here at, uh, at the beginning of worship, or at the children's word was actually a, a, a recasting of a story told by Fred Craddock, who borrowed the idea from Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, so uh, third, fourth step along. As Fred Craddock tells it, he was out on a walk one morning, and it was a spring day, and it was beautiful, and the cold had finally relented, and he had put on a lot of holiday pounds, and he was needing to get out and walk around. And as he's walking down the sidewalk, a nine-pound sparrow comes walking toward him in the other direction. And he stops, he says, wow, uh, you're a big bird. Uh, kind of put on a little weight there. And the sparrow said to him, yeah, that's why I'm out walking. I got to get this weight off. I got to take all this weight off. And he said, but you have wings. You could, you could fly. Why don't you fly and get your exercise that way? And the sparrow said, flying? Oh, my heavens, no, it's too dangerous. There's all those uh, branches that you might miss, and there's a chance you could fall to the ground. He said, no, no, flying is too dangerous. I'm just going to walk up and down the street and keep this diet going. And Fred Craddock said, I looked at that sparrow and I squinted my eyes. I said, what's your name? The sparrow said, church. Friends, we're supposed to be flying. And there are clues all through the scriptures that this was God's intent all along. We curl our toes right over the rim of the canyon and we look down and because we're looking down we freak out when if we only looked up we might leap from the edge of that canyon and begin to soar and I get it there's so many things to see when we keep our head down when we're distracted by the world around us it's very difficult very difficult. I imagine it that some special investigator got a search warrant and went to Peter and John's house and collected up all of his notes and his emails and all of the other stuff and they gathered it all in and they poured through it and they finally found his personal diary. What they would not find is that Peter had said to John, Let's wake up this morning and go down to the temple and make as much trouble as we possibly can today. That's not what they were going to do. They were going to pray and to praise and to worship God. They were going because they were filled with the power of their own experiences. Jesus was raised. Jesus had met with them, not once or twice, but a number of times. Over the, over the space of 40 days, he met with them, and then he was ascended. But before he left, he said what we just read in the gospel today, wait in the city until you receive power from on high. How long do we wait? As long as it takes. Until you receive this power from on high. For I will send it. And he said, I will rise after three days, and he did. And he said that his life would be with them. And so they trusted 
And they were going to the temple day after day. And as we shared last week in worship, on their way into the temple, they saw the beggars lying there. And one man leaned up, hoping to get alms from them. And they said, I don't have silver or gold to give you, but what I do have, I give. They picked him up. His legs were made strong. And for the first time in 40 years, we find out, he was able to go inside the temple and see what the other beautiful people had always been able to see. Beautiful story. It attracted a huge crowd, a huge throng. And Peter said, well, while you're here, let me tell you how this man was made strong. And he began to teach and preach about Jesus and about what the scriptures had said and about how God was moving finally to bring Messiah's uh, reign into existence. But it was not a reign of power and domination. It was a reign of love and reconciliation and of peace. A reign with, which withstands the buffeting of the world and comes back with grace in its place. And while they were speaking like this, some people came rushing over. And there are details here. Sometimes when we're reading our scriptures, we kind of hear the word Pharisee or scribe or Sadducee or something else, and we kind of tend to lump it all together. But in fact, there were many different sects of Judaism at the time that Jesus came. Pharisees? Pharisees were people who went pouring through the scriptures. And they gathered together a set of of essential rules to live by, if you will. When you tell the Passover story, you're telling the Haggadah, the great story of God. But the Pharisees had the Halakha, which was the sort of the walk to walk. That's a, probably a good translation. This is, this is the code book. This is how you're supposed to live. This is how you're supposed to be. Pharisees were very concerned with how the word got chopped up and recast and spit back out. But honestly, the Pharisees were probably the most like our Lord Jesus of any of those people. And they tended to be out among. They believed in private worship. They thought your devotional life was essential to your understanding and knowledge of God. And in some way or other, they held out for a hope of a resurrection if we repent. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were descendants of a particular set of priests. And their entire ministry had everything to do with Jerusalem and the temple. The entire ministry of the Sadducees was all about the temple. Their jurisdiction didn't go beyond the temple and Jerusalem and its precincts. They were in charge of collecting the tithes and other taxes for being Jewish people, including those sent from those living in foreign lands who happened to be Jewish. The Sadducees did not believe in fate. They believed in works righteousness, and they believed that a righteous man is one who does, walks uprightly. If they transgress, they're supposed to come to the temple, make an atonement, and at the end of their life, that's it. They did not believe in the resurrection. What's this? They didn't believe in the resurrection. So it was the Sadducees and the high priest and the temple officials. Mind you, these, these were the aristocrats of their day. These had the greatest education, the best opportunity, 
These were the IV leaguers of Jesus' time. They had a lot of wealth and a lot of power and a lot of influence, and they came huffing over to where Peter and John were talking about Jesus and the power of his name and the resurrection, and they said, hold it right there, just a second. You're not preaching the resurrection in this place. No way. It's an affront to everything we believe. You getting the picture here? I want you to get the picture here. Because if we are brave enough to open the scriptures, listen to the Holy Spirit's guidance, and really understand the kingdom that Jesus was bringing to the world, we're going to see right away that there are any number of places where Christ's kingdom simply does not fit among the kingdoms of this world. No matter how many church leaders are bribed and bought off, the gospel of Christ will cut against so much of the world in which we live in. And Peter and John weren't worried about that. They were simply sharing out of their testimony of what they knew. The story that we're hearing now comes right after the power which was promised from on high was given to Peter and John. And so with that power, they raised up a man who needed healing. With that power, they walked into the sanctuary of God. With that power, they began to live out the promise of Jesus, which was that the gospel would begin in Jerusalem and then go to all of Judea and then to all of Israel and then like ripples in a pond, go to every nation upon the earth. And now we're right back with Isaiah in the song of the suffering servant. It's too small a thing, God told Isaiah, that you should be for the redemption of Judah and, and Israel only but I have appointed you to be a light to all the nations. Now, when you're going to cause ripples in a pond, you have to drop the stone in somewhere. And so, bloop, right there in Jerusalem, they began to witness. They began to tell the story. And the first thing that happened is that the, the Jerusalem temple officials came over and arrested them and put them in jail. It was too late <clears throat> to have a kangaroo court that night, so they left them to think about it in the timeout chair overnight. And then they brought them back in and made them stand in the docket. There's Peter, there's John, and there's a man who up until yesterday was lame from his birth and called a sinner one accursed by God. We don't know what his sin was, but look at him. He's broken. He's bent. God only punishes those people who have done wrong, so he, therefore, living with a punishment in his body, must have done something wrong. Talk about jumping to conclusions. So he did something right now because he's standing here whole and straight and strong. The healing and wholeness of God has come to him. Peter and John and this man who laid there for 38, 39, 40 years waiting to be healed, and the moment he gets healed, he gets healed by the wrong people on the wrong day. And he spends his first night of wholeness in jail. The persecutions of this world, my friends, cannot take away our wholeness. The worst that the world has to throw to the church cannot take away our joy. We continue to soar spiritually and in every other way because of the power of God's Spirit in our lives. They stood there, and the temple officials said, 
by whose name or by what power were you able to accomplish this sign that was done yesterday? And they said, by the name of Jesus. Yes, the same Jesus who was killed just a few weeks back. And the same Jesus who was raised from the dead. The same Jesus in whose name we now have the power to offer light and life and healing to the world. Can you hear the Sadducees setting their hair on fire as they begin to talk about the resurrection? I hear it today. You walk down the street and you come across someone who has welded their life <laughs> to the concept of atheism. And if you say, hi, my name is Pastor Bill, or hi, I'm Joe, I'm a Christian. They just, they immediately respond with a visceral kind of anger. But we have a witness to share. We have a story to tell. They questioned them for a few minutes. There was no denying that something had happened to this man. <laughs> Even they had to admit that. So then they said, hang on, we're going to go and deliberate for a few minutes. And they sat down together in their council, and they just tried to decide what to do. Well, what are we going to do? I don't know, but the multitude outside is going to string us up by our feet if we punish these people any further, because they are so filled with joy at what they're seeing. So I'll tell you what. We'll tell them just, we'll let you go this time with a warning, but if you ever preach this way again, it's going to... It's going to be bad for you. It's going to be really bad. We're going, to, we're going to land on you, but good. So they called him back in and they said, all right, we command you never to preach in the name of Jesus or teach in his name ever again. And Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, says, you're going to have to decide whether it would be better for us to listen to you or listen to God. But we know what we've seen. We know who we are, and we know our testimony. And with that, they let them go. We're going to pick their story up again next week. This powerful story of how those first tsunami waves began to go out from Jerusalem. But this week is a time for us to reflect on, on the fact that along with the healing and wholeness that the Spirit brings to our lives, one of the things that God engenders in people who are open to His Spirit is a truly holy boldness. A profound courage that is not of this world and can't be explained. The courage to start a new ministry wherein homeless women can receive personal items that they might need and can't get anywhere else. The courage to load a bunch of young people into a van and drive to the border of Mexico and to work there with orphans or work there to rebuild homes. The courage to go once or twice a month to Skid Row in Los Angeles and stand in a soup line and not only look at the homeless 
or drive past the homeless, but to feed the homeless, and while you're doing it, learn their names and learn their story and talk with them and give them the momentary gift of the full dignity of being a human being. The courage. When somebody says, I think we should take our enemies and just wipe them off the face of the earth to stand up and say, excuse me, Excuse me, but I've studied my scriptures and Jesus proposes another way. To love them into your family rather than to wipe them off the face of the earth. Oh, it's a harder way. It's a more difficult way. But I promise you, friends, the hardest part is just having the courage to stand up and say, what you're talking about now is is inconsistent with the kingdom that Christ preached as I see it. The power and the conviction to bear witness, even though it may cost a life, even though it might cost my life, because in the power of the resurrection, my life does not end at the end of my earthly days. And this is what had kept the Sadducees in so much fear. For the Sadducees, you had to milk every moment for what it was worth. Acquire as much wealth. Gain as much status. Gain as much standing as you can in the world because at the end of it, that's all you had. But at the end of our life in Christ, our life is just beginning, friends. And the best is yet to come. And our life in the fullness of Christ's presence is as different from this life now as a bird sitting in a nest is different from one soaring overhead. Are you with me? How can we have lost our conviction in such things? We go walking down the street. The church in a crouch. The church that believes that its circumstances are dictated by every other thing going on in the world. God's spirit poised to be poured out among us. And I want to share with you a fact this morning and then share with you what I think God would have us do about it. Since I've been your pastor, there's a number that has become very consistent and very important to me. That number is 10.4. What an odd number, right? 10.4 is the number of members that we are losing every year since I've been here. Some some get angry because I preach like this sometimes. And some are moved out of the area and some pass from our midst because of the natural course of life. But the number is there and it's real and it's consistent. And I want to tell you as firmly and gently as I can as your pastor that if adding their replacements to our numbers doesn't become our highest priority right now, today, then we're not going to grow. And if we only add 10 members a year to this church, we're actually fractionally still sinking. 10 is the baseline. 
So we have the boldness to launch a new preschool because we're hoping to meet some new people. We have the boldness to walk through a car show. I went over to get coffee this morning and I walked around and looked at the cars and it was great. And I felt like Bob Euchre in that old commercial where he got locked out of the, uh, of the party and he was standing there at the window going, man, they're having fun in there. And I wish I could curse all these heathens out here with their cars saying they've chosen the wrong thing, but you want to know what? They're having a good time out there. And we're having a good time in here today. But I'm asking you, my friends, to find the holy boldness, to locate the spirit in your own soul, the ability and the strength to go and speak to everybody you meet this week and say, can I get you to try my church with me? Can I get you to meet my Christ? Can I get you to share the Holy Spirit with me? Can I get you to come here to be a part of this fellowship and this community and this thing, to make this the highest priority and to think not of what FUMCO can provide for you like it's always provided for your needs, but to go out now and say, my church needs for me to make new members in this faith community the highest priority that we can make and to develop a holy, shameless boldness about it. This has got to be our priority. And I don't care if you're living in a retirement community. Because I'll tell you my witness. My own mentor, Dr. Albert Cavanaugh, was assigned to Yukaipa as his last appointment. Now, in case you don't know, Yukaipa is a little town in the foothills of the San Bernardino Mountains. And it's one that the local high schoolers affectionately called God's waiting room. There were 88 mobile home parks in Yukaipa and Calamesa. And all the retirees who couldn't afford to retire in Long Beach moved to Yukaipa, where the buck would go a little further. The, the newest members we got in that church were already 75 to 85 years old. And Dr. Kavanaugh, with a wonderful, warm smile on his face, said, look, they're not going to be here that long. We know this. So what we're going to do is we're going to help them make friends with each other and support one another. The, the women in that group, in that church, started a quilting group of their own. And it was called So Chin Chow. And I thought, well, one of them must have been a missionary to China. And that's where the name came from. And I said, what does So Chin Chow mean? They said, well, we're quilters, so we like to sew. And we gab a lot, so we like to chin wag. And we eat afterwards, so there's chow. So chin chow, really? <laughs> Sounds impressive. And at a time in their life when they had moved from friends and everything else, they found a fellowship and a warmth in that church. And Dr. Kavanaugh kept us relentlessly going out to bring the next people in. I watched that church grow from 280 to over 600 members. One Easter, we had 450 people in a church that's designed to hold 180. There were folding chairs in the aisle and people standing in the balcony, and it was so exuberant, it was so explosive, it was so amazing. And in the middle of all that, Judy and I 
were called by God to be there and said, look, we've done a little youth group work from now and again. Could we, could we add that to the mix here? At our very first youth group meeting, there were three youth that showed up. And only one of them was in high school. The other two were there trying to date the high schooler. <laughs> they had already graduated. So we handed down a rule on that very first Sunday in the afternoon. You got to be in high school to be in UMYF. So we shrank our group from three to one. But God is so generous. And God is so good. In my last year in that church, there were over 75 kids on the rolls of the youth group. There were 16 children at the senior awards banquet in that church's fellowship hall who were graduating from high school that year. And I wish I, wish I could tell you the plan and how we did it. But what we did is Judy and I just sort of forest gumped our way along, following the Holy Spirit into what seemed right. We made some mistakes, but we were U of R graduates. We fixed them. And we followed the Spirit. And God gave us a kind of a holy boldness that I can't explain other than I was watching my pastor do the same thing, and I thought, here we go. Every single person here knows some people who aren't here. Every one of us. And I'm saying right now, like a doctor talking to a patient, new people need to be our priority. You need to bring them here. You need to get to know their stories and their names. And I don't care if they're rich or if they're poor. I don't care if they have a second language or if they speak English primarily. I don't care if they're young or if they're old. Let's make this a year in which our holy boldness is so contagious that we start attracting and attracting and attracting. And I will be responsible for making sure that we are attracting them not to a church country club, but to a life in discipleship to Jesus Christ. And together, with a holy boldness before the Lord, we will defy what everybody is saying about the mainline Protestant church, that its days are gone, that it's no longer relevant, that it's useless. We're going to defy all of that by the power of God, and we're going to grow this place, and we're going to grow it again by the grace of God. All I need you to do is to stand in body or spirit right now. Go ahead. I need you to hand, hold your arms out as wide as you can. And now I need you to flap like crazy. <laughs> Amen? Amen? Amen. Please remain standing as we sing our hymn of invitation. Turn your eyes upon Jesus.